Hi, it's Chad Griffiths. I'm the host of the Industrial Real Estate Show, and I'm glad you're here. After you listen to it, please consider leaving a review on our Apple or Spotify page and check out any more episodes to see how you can learn more about the industrial real estate market. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Industrial Real Estate Show. I'm your host, Chad Griffiths. I'm very excited for a episode this week, which I actually filmed last week. I was going to save it for this coming Saturday, but my guest for today actually had to cancel at the last minute. So I'm going to run this pre-recorded one today. Uh, two experts uh, who are consultants in site selection, Tondi and Kevin from Hickey & Associates. We talked about the South Asian markets, specifically about industrial real estate and and how these markets are looking very appealing for all the companies that are looking for that China plus one strategy where they're looking to diversify the supply chain. And we talked all about some of the major uh, South Asian markets, get into, into the weeds on this a bit. It was a fascinating conversation. I learned a lot myself uh, and I think you will as well. I'll also be tuned in live. Uh, so if you want to leave a comment or a question uh, or smash the thumbs down button and let me know about it, uh, do that in chat. Uh, I'll be joined in live for this as well. And I'd love to uh, to chat with anybody that's tuned in. Without further ado, please to be joined by Kevin and Tondi. Well, good afternoon, gentlemen. It's well, I should say good morning to you, Tondi. It's 6 a.m. where you are right now. Uh, so good afternoon, Kevin. Good morning, Tondi. Uh, thank you both so much for joining me on the show. Well, it's great to be here, Chad. And as, as I said, it's um, uh, Icky is a global organization, so we do need to be culturally sensitive. And I appreciate your flexibility in uh, providing a time slot that we could have both the East, your time zone and the Eastern U.S. time zone and Singapore, which is 6 a.m. in the morning. So uh, we're all used to uh, very odd uh, calls at very odd times of the day to make sure we stay connected. So how do you do that, actually? I'm I'm genuinely curious, but I do I deal with a lot of different time zones day to day in North America uh, where it's at max three hours difference. But how do you schedule around all the massive different time zones where it's morning versus night? Uh, there was always someone who is uh, un the unfortunate person who needs to get up in the middle of the night or the very early morning or late at night. I mean, we've got, we span the globe, Hickey's a global uh, site selection firm. So we have offices and, and people around the world. So when you look, look at the West Coast and the East Coast and all the time zones in between, plus all the European time zones, plus Asia time zones uh, going from, you know, India, which is nine and a half hours ahead all the way to Australia, which I believe is 16 hours ahead, it gets very difficult. So the, 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 the cultural sensitivity is you tell your team members that, hey, you know, uh, you're as a global organization, you need to understand that you're not U.S. centric or Canadian centric or Mexico centric, you're global centric. So everyone's got uh, everyone needs to put their time, their time in and uh, understand that, that, that things don't revolve around us in the eastern United States. And in this case, Tondi drew the short straw by having to get up <laughs> early in the morning. It's, it's okay. It's okay, Chad. So uh, like uh, Kevin said, we are, we are very globally uh, uh, working as a global team. So there's also an, an element of understanding on what's the challenge on the other part. So sometimes it doesn't work. So we just uh, need to sometimes organize two meetings to discuss actually the same thing. That's fine with us. So... Uh, that that's also one of the aspects of being culturally sensitive, as what uh, Kevin mentioned. So I really appreciate that. That happens in in Hickey and Associates. 
And I do want to dive into uh, Southeast Asia specifically with you guys. And before we do that, I, I'd like to have you give a little bit more information on two things. First, I'd like to just have you describe site selection and what that process is and what that process involves. And then also just Hickey uh, and and even yourselves, three, three things, actually. I'd love to hear what site selection is, what what is Hickey, and then your guys' uh, background. And you don't need to... Uh, go into it in great de- uh, detail as much as you feel comfortable with. Right, right. Uh, so, Tony, I'll start off. So, uh, site selection, in a nutshell, is helping companies figure out the right locations and the right places to locate their facilities. So, it helps them implement their business strategies. Right. Uh, we do everything from uh, comparing countries down to markets within countries, down to site uh, quadrants within markets, down to specific sites. So everything, three major areas. One is um, uh, site selection, which is uh, you know analysis and comparative analysis of alternatives for sites. Uh, the second one is labor analytics, helping companies understand where their labor is going to come from, which has become incredibly, incredibly important uh, lately. And then thirdly, um, uh, incentives, right? So they're with all the new legislation and governmental programs around the world, really there's so much money to help companies locate and we help them procure and negotiate the incentives packages. So it's really a nuts to bolt solution from you know network optimization, site selection. We're not real estate brokers. We partner with a lot of different consultants and partner with the, the individual companies. We work with brokers, developers, uh, occupiers, uh, really uh, just to help them locate the right things. Uh, Personally, myself, um, I'm new to Hickey and Associates. I've joined a year ago. I used to head up uh, corporate real estate, global real estate for Haynes and Sara Lee for many years and spent a significant amount of my time uh, building a supply chain, helping build the supply chain over in Asia, in Southeast Asia in particular. So several million square feet. So quite a bit of experience in the region. Um, uh, with that, Tandy, I'll let you describe uh, yourself and, and your take on Hickey and Associates. Yes, uh, I came from a uh, corporate real estate uh, background, uh, Chad. So I was uh, with uh, Collius uh, for a long time, uh, for 24 years. And then I, later I joined uh, LinkedIn as the head of real estate in Asia Pacific. And then I moved over to Uber. Uh, so it was a big uh, uh, experience for me in terms of uh, location strategy. So in the past, what I did was just looking into demand and supply of real estate and then uh, suggest to clients of which one is the right location based on that two factors only, demand and supply. Uh, but when I was at LinkedIn and Uber, I was uh, I, I was exposed to more um, reality of how a corporate work. Uh, in this case, uh, locate offices uh, in uh, where the labor is available, the labor pool. And at the time, I uh, appointed Hickey. So Hickey was my favorite consultant at the time, uh, where in my business case, I presented the topic of where the labor availability is for the best location for Uber at the time. Because at the time, Uber was expanding uh, and I was mandated to double the portfolio. So we will be hiring uh, 3,000 plus 2,000 people in India and into cities. So it's not longer about real estate. State, uh, demand and supply. It's all about where is the labor pool and how would we be located in a strategic location to be able to hire this uh, labor pool. 
And then later, I, I, I realized there are more aspects to it, like grant and incentives, ESG, supply chain. So those are the things that is a lot more dominant than just demand and supply, uh, at least from the corporate way of thinking, uh, Chad. Oh, that's very interesting. I, I appreciate how you guys both have uh, different backgrounds, but have used all those skills that you've harnessed along the way to to where you're at currently. That's that's a, a very cool complement of of skills there. So I'd love to actually just jump right into Southeast Asia's market. And I, I've heard you both mention that labor is a major consideration right now. What are some of what are some of the major considerations beyond labor that companies evaluate when they're considering perhaps staying in Southeast Asia. So it could be companies that already have a spot there, or it could be a company in North America or even Western Europe that wants to expand and they, they want to consider Southeast Asia. I, so I guess that'd be the question for companies already there or companies that are considering moving to that area with labor being a dominant one, what are some of the other considerations and what are some of the attractions on why Southeast Asia looks good right now? Yeah, so the, the genesis of the paper really was a, a major real estate conference that was over there um, in Singapore. Um, and with the expertise that Hickey has in Southeast Asia, we said, well, you know, what's happening in the world and how should we look at Southeast Asia? And we're looking at Southeast Asia and companies are looking at Southeast Asia in a whole new light. They've been there, been operating. It's been a great place to operate for many years. Uh, I personally started in Vietnam in 2006 when they joined the World Trade Organization. But we're in the post-pandemic world. And, you know, we thought the post-pandemic world was has changed everything, but it's just gotten more confusing. Right. Uh, the post the, the pandemic really blew up supply chains. That was the start. Then everything started coming on top of that, you know, uh, the geopolitical tensions, security issues, uh, new free trade agreements, um, you know, trade wars, the deglobalization, just everything converging at once. So companies have started coming to Hickey and saying, you know, what are all our alternatives? And we said, well, have you looked at Southeast Asia? Southeast Asia as a block, the ASEAN nations, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations is one of the largest trading blocks in the world. So um, I've, I've, you know, I take it for granted because I've done work there for so long. And what the reality of it is, it's got so many favorable characteristics as far as what companies are looking for. Number one, labor, skilled labor, all the way down to low skilled labor to high tech manufacturing across all the board, across all 11 nations. Right. The demographics are very, very favorable. Lots of young people growing. Uh, continuing urbanization, right, which which uh, means a lot more people for the labor pool and also keeps labor rates down, right? Um, uh, a burgeoning middle class, consumer class with lots of money to spend, high tech, right? So favorable, uh, lots of land, favorable resources, just a whole lot of things that really make the area look really favorable for companies. So as companies look to figure out their supply chain and rethink it. It's not just a China plus one strategy. It's a Taiwan plus strategy. Um, companies aren't going to near, they're going to nearshore, but there's alternatives to nearshoring and that's staying in the Asian markets and figuring out how to serve those Asian markets from other areas. And Southeast Asia becomes very attractive from those standpoints. Tony, do you want to add anything? Yeah, the, the population, the size of population in Southeast Asia is almost 700 million. So that is 
not that far different to uh, India or China, right? So, and if we look at that, and then they are growing uh, so, organically, so organically, so significantly, it's just number one, it's a market by itself for many of the products and services by companies. Number two, it's the right, the right location to produce those products or assemble or manufacture uh, those products themselves. So very, very interesting uh, region in the world uh, right now, Chad. Thanks for that answer. And Kevin, you brought up a point that came to mind was the trend of nearshoring or some U.S. companies are onshoring, reshoring. Do you see that as being a threat to global supply chain and some of these markets in Southeast Asia where where companies are trying to move away from that? Or is is as simple as you suggested that this is still a very viable strategy where companies can take advantage of, of cheaper labor uh, and it still makes sense from a financial standpoint? Or do you see that reshoring perhaps being overblown in the news for what's actually happening? I don't think re- nearshoring and reshoring is overblown, but I think it's not, it's not what people think. It's not about moving operations back to the West. It's about balancing your supply chain. Right. It's about making sure that you have a resilient supply chain where you can supply your customers with your product um, in any case of world worldly disruptions. Right. Security, transportation. And I think that's what companies are rethinking. Now, Southeast Asia is not going to uh, 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 be hurt from nearshoring and reshoring. It's going to it's going to gain, actually, because as companies considering a China plus one strategy, figuring out how to, you know, how to stay in China and access those markets. Southeast Asia is just becoming much, much more attractive. Um, Again, the labor, the labor rates, the labor rates are far more advantageous to the West. Um, Population and the availability of labor, the availability of land, the perceptions of doing business there are changing. Uh, They have wrongly perceived uh, issues with with uh, business issues um, and the world's being educated to Southeast Asia. But most of the, in fact, the, the um, uh, there's a lot of uh, foreign direct investment flowing from China back into Southeast Asia as companies move. And you've seen a lot of companies uh, announce, some of the major tech companies announcing they're moving out of China, but they're not moving back to the United States. They're moving into other parts of Asia and Southeast Asia and India are the, are the main benefactors of that. That makes sense. So does that, is there a net loser in this is, is, or is it just a matter of this reshifting is going to involve a lot more countries and a rising tide raises all boats sort of scenario, or is China and other countries at risk of actually losing some market share? Is that on the table? Uh, Do you want to take a stab at that? I, I don't think so, Chad. Uh, China is still big and they are uh, consuming a lot of the products and services uh, themselves. Uh, but what, I think what happened is the growth is uh, balanced out. Uh, so it's not only about China being the largest uh, factory uh, floor in the world, but now there is a balance. There are growth in Southeast Asia. There is growth in India also, for instance. So I think the, the whole economy globally is still expanding. So that uh, that's what happened. I don't, I don't think there is a net loser in this case. That's how I I see things uh, like uh, in, in my view. Kevin? Yeah, the, the only way there's going to be a net loser is depending on the geopolitical and trade issues, right? I mean, the, the, all the trade, all the free trade agreements are being restructured. Um, but we have the trade war. I mean, we have to admit what's going on. Tariffs are being slapped on everyone. So 
uh, you know, the only losers are going to be the people that uh, that come out on the on the bad end of a, of a, of a tariffs and free trade agreements. And uh, the world has, a, you know, in the last 25 years has has um, experienced an incredible uh, globalization where you could move products freely around everywhere. Right. And that that system is breaking down from, for a number of reasons that the trade wars you have uh, the United States actually kind of um, uh, a bit of deglobalization. Right. They're not necessarily uh, as re- as interested in globalization anymore. And they're so they're pulling back on on, um, you know, securing the world's trade routes. And as you know, uh, for the last 80 years, the world has had free trade based on the United States guaranteeing security. Through all the trade routes and that's all shifting so what's happening is you know you have a regionalization going on in the world so nations are jockeying you know europe and japan and asean and china asean and europe and everyone's jockeying with all types of new free trade agreements and we we highlight this in the paper that we don't know who the winner is going to be yet but everyone's trying to figure out how they best set up you know for the future and you know europe just went through the the brexit uh, they're figuring out their free trade agreements, right? So everyone's everyone's kind of jockeying for position, and uh, there should not be a net loser. But again, it's up to the nations and what what the, what happens with uh, uh, you know the geopolitical tensions. I mean, we're at an unprecedented time where um, the Bretton Woods uh, Convention is kind of breaking down, and there's a whole new era of regionalization and security emerging, and no one knows where that's going to fall. Yeah, great point, uh, both of you. Can you just go into that ASEAN description a little bit more? So, eleven nations, seven hundred million people in that in that area, as Tondi mentioned. Is it a an actual organization, or is it a loose association, or is it meant to just describe a regional term? Or can you just break down like what what that is more? Sure, Tondi, do you want to take that, or do you want me to take that? Uh, let me start, uh, and then I hand over to you, Gavin. So let me just list down the, the countries as what uh, we uh, uh, classify or group as ASEAN: uh, Cambodia, Indonesia, Laos, uh, Malaysia, Myanmar, Philippines, Singapore, Thailand, and Vietnam. And they are organized under uh, ASEAN, uh, Southeast Asian Nation Association. So, in fact, uh, they just uh, had a, a high-level summit. Uh, the presidents and all the state leaders of the ASEAN countries uh, uh, two weeks ago, I think, uh, in Indonesia. And what they do is they uh, meet uh, regularly and they uh, kind of align their policies. And one of the outcome of the uh, summit in the uh, two weeks ago is uh, a more uh, uh, in sync uh, policies and agreement about uh, a Myanmar crisis. Uh, there is also an agreement about uh, development of electric vehicle program across the region. There is also uh, a discussion or agreement about protection of migrant workers. Uh, please note that these are countries, so covering 700 million population, there are migration here and there. So there, there is an agreement about protecting uh, migrant workers, which is uh, uh, a hot topic uh, on a separate note on the topic of ESG, which uh, Kevin is an expert of also. So those are the, the how the mechanics of this uh, uh, countries are operating, uh, Jet. Kevin? Yeah, the organization has actually been around, I believe, believe since the 1980s you'll have to google that and check it but it's been around for quite a while and the reason was just 
to have all the countries participate and understand the leverage and negotiation that the region has a whole as, a, as an economic entity. And as an economic entity, they obviously have to work on a lot of the issues uh, on the politics, right, and the policies. But they, it's, it's, it's become a much stronger organization in the last couple of years. Uh, they have very strong programs on, uh, on negotiating free trade agreements. They negotiate basically as a block with all the other uh, regions of the world and all the other countries of the world. Um, they negotiate, uh, you know, a very strong, they understand issues with the country, such as renewable resources. So they have a, they have a, a, an incredible amount of natural resources. They're high in coal and oil, but they understand the value of renewable energy. So they've got a tremendous program on developing renewable energy and moving towards renewable energy. Um, and that as a block, then they have much more strength. It's probably the third or fourth largest trading block in the world, which people don't realize. So it competes very effectively with Europe um, uh, and, and the United States. It's not nearly as big as the United States or China, but it's a very effective trading block. Um, it's becoming uh, much stronger, as I said, and there are always issues because you have different governments, different things happen. Uh, you have different, de di different democracy types. You have some communist types there. So um, it's been relatively effective. Most people understand ASEAN, but in the new world of, of what's going on with post-pandemic and the, and, the, and the geopolitical issues is becoming much more recognized as a regional powerhouse block of economics, labor, good demographics. Most of, most of the countries in the world, many countries in the world are having, you know, demographics are, are horrible. Um, declining population. China, just for instance, first year of population decline. But the, the demographics of the the population pyramids and demographics of the ASEAN nations are very healthy, showing they have a replacement population. There's a nice young growing population, high skilled, lots of great cities, great universities, et cetera. So it's really becoming recognized now in companies. Um, we spoke to one significant uh, uh, supply chain uh, uh, VP over there a, a couple of months ago, and he was uh, right on saying, they're, they love Southeast Asia and they're growing as much as they can there. And the, the beauty about Southeast Asia, it, it, you can have an entire supply chain built in South, in the Southeast Asian countries within a relatively small geographic area, everywhere from the low skilled laborers who are just coming out of agricultural markets, uh, all the way up to high tech advanced manufacturing. And you see that in cities such as Singapore and uh, Kuala Lumpur and, and Ho Chi Minh City and Bangkok, world class cities. Lots of talent, great people, young people, um, low labor, and and populations that are willing to work, and they work very very hard, right? Good good ethics. Yeah, it does sound like there's a, a lot of benefits to people considering that. What are one of the drawbacks that perhaps comes to mind, or one of the impediments, I should say, is uh, language barriers, as it would be for a company deciding to move to any foreign country. How many within that uh, union or block of 11 nations, how many different languages are there uh, spoken in there or common ones, I should say, because there's probably an unlimited amount of different languages, right. languages. Hello, my name is Wyatt Hammond, and I am the producer of the Industrial Real Estate Podcast. I'm here to let you know that this episode is being sponsored by Bastion Pens. Bastion is an American custom pen designer that manufactures their products out of top quality materials such as stainless steel titanium, and aluminum. 
Fashion pens are a premium, reliable writing instrument that make the act of writing more enjoyable every day. Use the code in the description to order yours. Now back to your episode. Tanya, that's your expertise. <laughs> well, uh, you, you're right, uh, Chad. Uh, uh, naturally, we are, uh, I think there are thousands of languages here in ASEAN, uh, but English is a dominant uh, language uh, spoken, hmm. especially with the younger generation. So, uh, and and it's, it's just... Uh, uh, the reality of the whole social media, globalization, TV, whatsoever, all the young population speaks uh, English fluently uh, and they are rapidly embracing uh, that as their main language, uh, as, as, especially in the largest cities. Right? So I don't think language is, a, is an issue uh, nowadays. Um, and, and I think, uh, respectfully, uh, every country has uh, their own uh, legal or sorry, what, uh, uh, formal language. Uh, it could be Chinese, it could be Indonesian, it could be Malay, it could be uh, Tagalog, uh, but uh, English is widely spoken in the region. Hmm. So I actually really yeah, and you know, Phil, Philippines is, is widely known as the place where, where companies are putting call centers and back office operations because of their language skills. Right. So, so incredible uh, uh, English skills there. And honestly, I've traveled there for 15, 16 years on business in almost every ASEAN country and I've never had a problem. Um, English is the language of business um, and countries recognize that to so participate in the world that they need to be able to communicate in English. You know, the, honestly, the only issues we've ever really had was when you go out into the, the far rural areas. Right. But you're, there's people, you know, translators that, that will help you um, because a lot of the industries push out into the rural areas, depending on the labor, the structure of the labor market. And that's where you run into English problems because there's not 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 the development there. Which would make sense. And right. one of you alluded to it earlier as well as just dealing with different governments, different political structures, that there's a learning curve that would have to go into place on that as well. What what do companies often do or what's common when they're moving into a new country and suppose they choose Malaysia. How do you actually bring yourself up to speed on all the different issues, which are going to be, I'm sure there's similarities with, with like the U S where some things are consistent, but I'm sure there's also things that are quite a bit different. How, how do you, how does a company bring themselves up to speed on that? Don, you want to address that or you want me to handle that one? Well, the first thing is they should contact us because <laughs> <laughs> we 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 keep an eye on all the development of uh, even uh, the uh, regulation that is in process or in discussion at the parliament level. We keep an eye on those things. Uh, so, and it's rapidly changing, right? And uh, uh, what we see so far is uh, anything to do with ESG is very high level in terms of priority by the governments. So if a company is looking at ESG as one of their biggest criteria in location selection, or ESG is a big thing within the company goals, uh, uh, this is an opportunity to look at uh, ASEAN because each of the countries are very committed. And as I mentioned to you, even two weeks ago, there is a discussion about electric vehicle network work in ASEAN uh, discussed by the state level uh, leaders. So uh, please contact uh, Kevin or I, uh, and I'll, we will be more than happy to consult these companies. Well, yeah, so the uh, high level process, Chad, is is really the company first needs to figure out what its critical lo location factors are. What are they trying to accomplish in locating or staying here, right? Is it uh, low skilled labor? Is it medium skilled labor? Is it high skilled labor? what type of industry they are. We have significant clustering of industries in, in different countries. 
And we analyze that for companies and say, here's where this cluster of companies is located. Here's where uh, your electricity, your dominant electricity, water resources are. Water resources are. Here's where the particular labor is suited to your your company. Um, so we do high level assessment, and that with this, that's what this paper kind of starts identifying a comparative analysis between the countries. Then you start digging in deeper, right? Once you start eliminating a couple countries, then you say, um, and we're good at creating teams to help companies enter markets. So number one, you're going to need obviously a good accounting and tax firm, right? Number two, you're going to need a good legal team, right? They There are a lot of myriads to, to jump hoops on. And we're not by any account an accounting firm or a, a legal firm, but we specialize in site assessments and, and comparative analysis. But you must, you, the company must assemble a very strong team of HR, supply chain, network, uh, um, you know, lay, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, legal. Um, and from that teaming, then you work together, to figure out again what your location factors are and you start digging down. Okay, you choose a couple, couple uh, countries, then you start choosing a couple markets within those countries and do a compare. And you work yourself way all the way down into the sites, individual sites and where, where the, the best locations possibly could be. And you, 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 you weight different location factors and you play, you have a sensitivity model that says, well, this is more important than this. Um, and you can change with the weighting of them to see how the different locations, you know, kind of start to filter out based on your location criteria. And that's a long process, but it, that's, that's an overall, how you work from a high level assessment down into starting in, down to individual sites. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you did a pretty good job of, of clarifying that it's a process and you distilled that into short form but i i can appreciate that that is a long process and and i'd also appreciate that your role as consultants isn't necessarily to be salesmen for southeast asia any more than it would be to be salesmen for the u.s your role is to provide people the best information uh on all the different markets so that they can make a decision based on what you're providing them so i, I think that's an important distinction as well because i'm asking you all these things about southeast asia but and and i would fully appreciate how someone would have to hire a consultant like you guys to go through this process to navigate that without having consultants and all that information available seems daunting and and pr probably unwise so i can i can really well, it's all about it's all about the data and the data sources and understanding where the data sources are and how to filter through the fluff and get to the real data, right? We also do a significant amount of uh, ground truthing, which means we get in and we interview com companies. You know, this is what we're hearing. This is what the, the data is saying. Tell us what your experience is. So, you know, it's not just data sources. It's actually primary ground truthing research to say, okay, here's an area we picked. We went out and interviewed all these companies to, you know, uh, interview the HR managers, so the supply chain managers, the transportation managers, to figure out and say, hey, you know, is it, this is what we're hearing. Uh, tell us what you're seeing in the marketplace. To dig into a, into that a little bit further, actually, I'd I'd love to just explore the supply chain side of Southeast Asia, uh, and I'd love to start by just even getting a better understanding of how goods are distributed across the the various countries. So, with it being a a union, are you if you're going across three different countries, there are you dealing with three different sets of government having to import and export uh, or or does that block is it the intent to allow for quicker flow of goods Andy, you want to take that let me take it uh go, go ahead kevin yeah no i mean the trade routes are pretty well set 
and the companies cooperate. You do have different uh, regulations you need to go to, but essentially every company, every country has their own port you get to, right? Um, and ports are all all important there, and there are significant ports. Uh, there's a $15 billion infrastructure uh, investment in the Singapore port. I, I think it's probably the second largest port in the world, um, next to Shanghai, maybe, something like that. Vietnam's investing a lot of money. So really, it's access to the ports within individual countries. Um, Vietnam has its port type ports. So every every country has its major ports. Most of those ports predominantly will 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 uh, flow through either Hong Kong or Singapore, and then through the trade routes over to either Europe or the U.S. Um, so you know, really, the biggest issue in that is access to the ports from the location within the country. And then the, you know, because there are some countries that aren't quite there yet with their transportation networks, uh, uh, not to pick on Vietnam, but Vietnam still has a, a quite a network of two lane roads, right? But you see it in, in many developing areas in the world where the infra, the, the business gets ahead of the infrastructure, right? But, um, all the countries understand the significance of the ports and, and just tremendous, uh, investment in it. Does every country in there have at least one major port then? So is there a, at least 11 major ports? Yeah, there's even more ports than that. Um, and the Vietnam has several, Thailand has several. Um, uh, you know, I can't speak specifically, but yeah, ports are a major, major investment opportunity. And there's a lot of money pouring into the port infrastructure, uh, FDI, foreign direct investment, uh, and company uh, and country subsidies of ports. I suppose it's a pretty competitive advantage for them if when the U.S. had all those port bottlenecks, particularly off Los Angeles and Long Beach, and everything ground to a halt on that, there wasn't a whole lot of options. You could go through the Panama and you could try to uh, port on on one of the uh, uh, East Coast ports, but they're they're not designed to handle that huge inflow of of activity either. So that really caused a lot of bottlenecks in the supply chain in the U.S. And I suppose if one country in that Asian uh, market had had an issue with one of their ports or major ports. I, 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 what I'm inferring is that you can go redirect to another port and then those trade routes are already there. So you can still keep that supply chain up and running. A fair way of describing it. Yeah, there's a lot of jockeying in the ports in, in ASEAN countries too. I mean, they have their issues with the ports. And I know, you know, several times we had to redirect ports into a Look at how you get to a different port in the country or cross border. To get into another country and report, and and you have, you have some geographic considerations too when you're going from uh, Thailand over to Vietnam. You've got some major mountains to go through. So, but uh, you know, the good news is the, the supply chain disruption has made everyone rethink those and come up with resiliency plans on what happens if th if this happens to this port or this happens to this country or the pandemic or this country shuts down because of a pandemic. You know, the different countries in ASEAN had different attitudes toward, towards the pandemic, right? And it was hard to keeping, keeping supply chains moving when a country would demand that their, all the factories shut down, right? Um, wasn't necessarily as bad as the China, the China shut down, but uh, the, uh, some of the ASEAN countries had their issues also. Is, what's most of the travel on land? Is there a rail yeah, network in place or is it mostly just by truck? Uh, mostly by truck. Tom, you tell me if I'm wrong. I mean, there's the real infrastructure is not really built out and the geography 
of many of these countries doesn't lend itself to the, the railroad networks. Um, yeah, but mainly by truck. Yes, by uh, mainly by trucks, uh, and also as as you mentioned, by ship uh, uh, through ports, right? Uh, because this is uh, quite thousands and thousands of islands uh, in Indonesia, Philippines, uh, Thailand, to Vietnam, too, right? So uh, it it is a lot more complicated than uh, when when you speak about supply chain uh, compared to Europe or US, uh, for instance, because it's all one land and all well connected by roads and by railway, etc. Uh, this is a lot more complicated, and within that, uh, this uh, this is a combination of a number of countries, right? So but then we need to look into where the labor pool is. We cannot just move. Uh, uh, a million people from this country to another country or etc right so it needs to be really really look into carefully and Kevin is our expert in this and looking into the entire supply chain uh what is the where is the raw material where is the labor pool where where should we assemble where which port will that be etc but it's all workable and then with uh a bit more uh analytics i think we will be able to create or help companies to look into how to uh, create a sustainable and uh, a reliable uh, supply chain network, plus uh, with all the risk of, of uh, the pandemic or the uh, country changes uh, in terms of policy, free trade agreement, etc. So it's, it's a fascinating, but yet uh, there are a lot of opportunities within this uh, region. Hmm. Yeah, the one thing you touched on, Chad, that we need to make sure we mention is there's a lot of misperceptions about the countries and we deal with, you know, when I've talked about putting together a team, there a lot of misperceptions about corruption and payoffs and the ease of doing business. You can work through all those. It's not difficult, but there's a lot of those high standing perceptions out there. Um, I was on the phone with a significant European manufacturing company and their, their, their chief legal officer just didn't want to go to Vietnam because they had such bad perceptions about it. But it was just that it was just perceptions. So we got on the phone through them. We walked through a lot of the issues, the companies that are doing business there the sophistication of the attorneys and the accountants that are there and gave her a comfort level that, okay, you're right, we will consider doing business there. So it's just, you know, there are a lot of those perceptions. There's, you know, we've got governmental structure, right? Whether it's communist or what kind of democracy it is, you've got corruption issues, um, you know, business practice issues. Most companies have very strong programs in place to protect against that. And when you do training in the Foreign Corrupt Practice uh, Practices Act and as long as companies have strong programs in place, they won't have any any issues with that, right? Yeah, it's funny as you're so there are risks. What we're saying, there are risks, but they're easily overcome, right? Well, and there's risks with every country. I, I, right. A lot of U.S. companies have no problem dealing with China, uh, but we're, we're all well aware of the same risks that are there. So it's funny how some people will say, well, happy to do business in China, but we won't consider Malaysia or Philippines. Exactly. We have this conception. Right. Uh, and, and even right. that conception can't possibly be worse than what you already know, uh, which what is going on in China. So that, that, that's funny how they, uh, they approach that. Uh, on the industrial side specifically, and I don't know if you will necessarily have the answers to this, but when when you're looking at industrial, there's the, the manufacturing side where they're making goods, and then there's going to be the warehousing side where they're storing the goods. Are most of those facilities going to be within short distance of the port, or are you going to see inland developments as well? The good question. Um, I don't know what was contemplated by a short distance of the port. 
right? I mean, but most most of them will be within, you know, at least a four to six hour drive, generally, because they're all fairly close to the water anyway, right? So they're close to the ports. So that generally isn't that much. The transportation to the ports, not that big of an issue, right? And yeah, there's congestion on the two lane roads, but it's generally not, not it's easily overcome. That's not the... The cost savings based on the labor and doing business over there far outweighs any transportation costs to the port and the port and structure. What does the ownership structure of the buildings look like? So a company, a large company wants to consider Vietnam. Is it common for them to go and buy their own land and build? Or is it more common for them to find a partner and either lease existing space or find someone to do a build to suit essentially, and then they just become a tenant. Is is and maybe it differs across all eleven nations, but is there one more common than the other? Yeah, uh, land ownership is very it, it, it's it's significantly different between the nations. For instance, in in Vietnam, you can only lease land, but you can do fifty seven year leases, right? And with the industrial markets, it's it's you wanted to get into real estate. It's not a open competitive market like it is in Europe and the US. It's not industrial brokerage is not that well developed outside of the markets or, or actually within some of the cities. So it's it's up to the company to do, do their own ground truthing and hire companies like us to go in and do the ground research to find the buildings. And then you're negotiating basically with uh, the single owners of the buildings to lease um, or to buy. You, buy. you can buy the building, but you can't buy the land. You lease the land, right? Um, you'll see a lot of the more professional investors, large uh, warehouse uh, REITs getting into the markets because it's a growing consumer demand requiring warehousing of goods for distribution to the consumer market. Predominantly up until this time, it's been a manufacturing for export markets, right? But as the, as the middle class, consumer class starts to grow, there's a lot of warehousing development going on for the for the in-country consumer uh, distribution. So when they're... God, you, God, you've got more experience in some of like Malaysia and I don't know what the land yeah, is. Right, right, right. So I, I, I think the supply is is there, plentiful. Uh, it's all about uh, uh, getting to uh, know or to be in touch with logistics or uh, developers uh, specializing in industrial uh, properties. Uh, lease is the most convenient, the quickest, and also the most feasible uh, model of uh, providing the uh, the space. But uh, build to suit is an option. So if your facility requires a certain technical difference to what is available, uh, most of the developers, uh, uh, landlords are more than happy to build you one uh, that will be suitable uh, to you. But uh, there anywhere that you would want to go, I think I would confident, confidently say that there will be supply of real estate already uh, in the market. But there's not a, there's not an open uh, warehousing of information. There's no loop net, anything like that. It's good old good old fashioned field mm. work. You're on the ground, knocking right. on doors. Right. You see a building and it looks vacant or something. You go, you knock on the door and say, "Hey, what's <laughs> going on with this?" Building? Right. I mean, that's that's the way it's done. Um, the brokerage right. is not well, not well established. The brokerage is well established in the office markets and residential and retail, uh, very far behind in industrial and warehousing. It's just there hasn't been the market. It's not been a, an open source market for that type of product. 
Right. It almost sounds like there's an opportunity for some enterprising uh, individual mm. company to go and try yes. and, and you'll see them. Yeah, you'll, you'll see them. And but a lot of the markets are Delta. You know, the, the, the major brokerage houses are based in Hong Kong and Singapore um, and Bangkok to, to an extent. But you don't see a lot of the industrial real estate brokers actually housed in the country. It's changing, but um, uh, it's, it's, it's still developing. So that, that's interesting because it adds another challenge uh, because it, I'm sure when you're going through the site selection and you're going through for at a high level on what countries could be of interest, that's still a major fundamental step would be you've got to find if there's a building that actually mm. works for what they want to do. And that's right. why I was curious on, on the investment side is that if there's already a building there and there's a landlord there, then that's great. Then that works. But if they're trying to come up with a unique building or something unconventional, there's there needs to be either someone willing to provide the land or there needs to be someone that's willing to build it for them and do a rent rent back. So it's, it's good to hear that there's, players there that are willing to do it. it just doesn't sound like it's very organized the investment market is an investor market is very immature there as the as the economies grow it's, it's starting to change you have the big uh reeks going in for warehousing and everything but um when you look at a piece of property and normal question to you chad as a broker in the united states well what are the comparable properties selling for well there are no comparable properties so it's what you're willing to pay for it and what the owner is willing to lease it to you for or sell it to you for Right. There's no such thing as a market valuation per se. Um, you can find some data, but data is very scarce. Um, it's 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 not the wild, wild west, but it's back to the good old days of boots on the ground type type in real estate work. Right. I mean, when I was doing work, I could find no brokers that could do the industrial. So I was using site selection firms like Hickey and Associates to go out and really you go to a market and knock on the doors. That, that's that's how basic it gets. Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, and so maybe this is a naive question. Maybe it should be an obvious answer. But are buildings relatively similar to where you're going to find uh, in other markets? It's like tilt-up concrete construction or pre-insulated metal panels. Or how, how are these buildings built? I can't even picture one, to be honest. So I need to do some more research on this. Um, not the standards that the U.S. would expect. I mean, it's metal buildings, uh, basically. Right, uh, the use uh, it's it's cheap construction, very cheap. Uh, you spend a lot of time uh, enhancing current structures to U.S. standards mm-hmm. or to you know safe standards. Uh, a lot of the work I've done was we'd find shell buildings and then we'd build them out to U.S. specifications. Right, so um, the builder suits we'd obviously build to our own specifications, and there are a number of construction companies um, in Southeast Asia that specialize in. U.S. building or Western building standards that help companies do that. Um, but if you're out uh, a new construction with investors are being built to higher standards, but generally a lot of the buildings are are being built by companies themselves to their own standards. Bonnie, does that fall in line with what you're, what you're seeing? I, I, I think there are, there are two possibilities. Uh, uh, what I would suggest is looking into industrial park. Uh, where they are already uh, a big developer or landlord building uh, buildings. And these are uh, typically very compatible with US or European standard and FPA standard, et cetera, for fire, fire safety, et cetera. So that's an easier solution. But if you are, if you do really want to go out in the, in the wild uh, and uh, uh, 
for your own reason, like uh, being close to your uh, supply chain, etc., then there is this challenge. And uh, there are uh, companies, consultants who can help you build and uh, uh, specify what you want uh, and then help either building, uh, ask the landlord to build for one for you as a build to suit, or you need to do uh, it yourself. So uh, those are the two routes. The easier one is go to industrial uh, park and they are plentiful in, in the entire uh, ASEAN or you go your own uh, way and build your own and that will be a bit more complicated as exactly what Kevin said. Yeah, Tony brings up a good point. A very strong network of industrial parks and dealing with the industrial park owners, right? But they're, they're generally locally owned or owned by significant entrepreneurs within the company or, or within the country. Uh, but they, they have nice products and they know how to deal with U.S. companies or Western companies. So they're becoming much more sophisticated uh, again, the issue with brokerages, they don't understand the brokerage community, so they don't uh, obviously necessarily pay brokerage fees. So there's always the, the proverbial dispute between landlord, tenant, and uh, broker as to who's paying what, <laughs> right? And uh, how, how people are being compensated for the work. But the industrial parks are quite significant. And I'm guessing there's a lot of government support to build mm. these and attract more companies that's that probably seems like the mission of ASEAN as as an organization is to attract more business so i'm sure there's a lot of government support for this is that fair absolutely yeah. you'll see the foreign direct investment growing substantially uh the foreign direct investment is growing into ASEAN is growing faster than i think any other country in the world um i'd have to check that statistic but it's, gro it's growing pretty strong right and it has it's continuing so you don't see outflow of stuff from you see uh, from ASEAN, you see a, a significant inflow, and a lot, a lot from China, um, a lot from Japan, a lot from the other ASEAN nations in between the ASEAN, ASEAN nations, a lot of European FDI into, into the ASEAN countries. So it's the potential is is strong as a as a powerhouse, economic, labor, demographic powerhouse, absolutely. And I'm sure it will continue to develop too, and it'll iron out those kinks where they might not have a whole lot of data available or it's this, it's not as easy of a system to navigate through on the actual real estate side. I'm sure as it grows, there'll be people that just try and find solutions to some of those perceived problems that are there. So yeah, that's, that's exciting to, uh, to see what's in the future for that area as a whole. Uh, is wrapping up on that note, is there anything that you would say is like a closing message for people considering uh, Asian uh, countries as an option or what they should be prepared for in the process uh, just as they, they evaluate that as a potential option? I would say two things. Number one, it's a whole new world of risk, right? So companies are looking for for alternatives and solutions. And so they need, the second thing is they need to, to be open uh, to different regions that they may, may not have been experienced before. And they need to do their really good, hard analytical work on comparing different sites in different countries and different options for their, for their locations. Oh, well said. Anything to add on that, Tony? Yeah, uh, this is a fascinating uh, region. And uh, this is also the location of one of the most significant projects in the whole world right now, which is the new capital city of Indonesia uh, called Nusantara. It's 59,000 hectares. So if you compare it to Singapore, Singapore is 66,000 hectares. So this is almost as big as Singapore. And uh, the government is pouring money into this uh, to move the capital city from Jakarta to this in the middle of Indonesia, which is called Nusantara. 
Um, it is a very, very sustainable uh, city. So it is. it will be powered by uh, uh, sustainable energy. Uh, the government is building four uh, dams uh, to, and also a solar farm uh, on, on the water uh, to, uh, to power this. Everything is electric vehicle, public uh, transportation are all will be electric vehicle. The city is built to be a 10 minute city. So you can walk to all the amenities facilities of the cities within 10 minutes. The entire government offices uh, are moved there even the, the president the ministers all the uh, ministerial departments uh, are moving there uh, so they are creating uh, jobs there and a lot of uh, incentives grants and incentives so for instance uh, i'm an indonesian so if i move there uh, my income tax will be zero. So it's very interesting for all of us uh, because then all of a sudden our salary will be increased by 30% <laughs> just by moving there. And a lot of incentives uh, that we never heard of uh, in Indonesia, uh, including a land title to be 95 years, uh, which is unheard of before. So there is a new policy being issued, uh, 0% uh, income tax if you are into infrastructure. So it's very, very fascinating. If anyone is, uh, any company is looking into a new opportunity, especially related to sustainability, ESG, this is the location that they, they should consider. Hmm. I'm going to look into that a little bit further. That sounds very Please, please. Yeah. There you go. What's the best way uh, if people want to get in touch with you to discuss either Southeast Asia or even just discuss Icky services and, and engaging you guys as site, cons uh, site selection consultants? What's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Uh, go to our website, hickeyassociates.com. A lot of information there. Um, all of our, our contact information you can find there. You can find us all on LinkedIn also. And uh, I would highly recommend you check out our um, research papers. We just released a paper on ESG, but from a standpoint of executing goals, not just talking about them, hmm. right? Uh, how corporate, corporate people, you know, real estate has a tremendous impact on ESG. How do corporate real estate folks actually do the work, right? We released a good, great paper on the Inland Empire comparing alternative markets based on the expense there. We released a paper on, uh, well, obviously this paper on Southeast Asia, um, but a lot of a lot of good information on incentives. Uh, Hickey's one of the major incentives negotiators in, around, the, uh, around the world. So uh, the best avenue to get hold of us is, is through the website. And uh, uh, I think you'll be, fascinating many of the global reports we're putting out on yeah and i'll leave a link to all of that to the research side as well as to the uh, one report that we were referencing about the asian uh nation so i'll leave links to all right. that and then i don't know if i have your linkedin tondi if you don't mind sending that to me sure. uh, and i'll put your linkedin uh descriptions or linkedin uh address in the description as well so thank you really want to thank you guys and especially you tony for getting up early for uh for this uh but wanna thank you guys for hey, yeah, great great podcast great industrial insights on your on your linkedin so really enjoy uh following you good stuff well Appreciate likewise it. yeah that those two reports that you did send me over were very fascinating so yeah so you've got a, a reader in me for sure following along on those and, and i'll encourage right. people to uh, to follow along as well so thanks for the kind words and and mostly just thanks for your time and sharing your your wisdom and insights i, I found that a very fascinating chat great appreciate it okay, thank well, you okay yep. thanks again guys thanks thank you. take care well, I hope you got some value from that episode. I always enjoy getting to speak with these guests. Again, if you got any value from this, please leave a review on our Apple or Spotify page and look to catch you in the next episode. Thanks.